A reading from the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry and we sin. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, 
for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he suddenly comes. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's, um, let's join in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words from Isaiah the prophet, that you would help us to know how we might be uh, individuals, persons, how we might be a community, even though we're meeting virtually this morning or later this day. We pray, Father, that um, you would help us to know how we might inhabit these words and make them our own, that we might let them become the cry of our own hearts. So meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, in our time together, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. So we said this is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian year. Uh, and the Christian year always begins, it takes us back to this space of waiting. And no one likes to wait. I mean, none of us do, I think. We remember moments from our childhood when you're anticipating Christmas Day and presents, and no one likes to wait for those moments. You wish that they could just rush in upon you and be right here, right now. But Advent always takes us back to this fundamental reality that is so important for us as Christians to embrace. And that is that we're not to live lives adjusted to this world as if we were there yet, as if we'd arrived yet. Rather, we are meant to be a people that are waiting and longing for the great day when Jesus returns and brings the fullness of his heavenly kingdom, that world of justice and goodness and peace, that space, that world in which we are right with God always, in which we are right internal to ourselves, our stories, have come back together in a holistic way, and our relationships experience that same wholeness of love overflowing and out beyond relationships into the workspace, into the creation itself. That is the world that we long for. So many of us, it's interesting, this Christmas or this Advent season, we were rushing to get our Christmas trees up precisely because we're so tired of this waiting we wish for 2020 to be done and gone, over and done. And yet here we are sitting yet again in another moment of lockdown. We've restricted the number of people that can be in the room as we film worship this morning. And we feel the absence and the loss. We're awaiting people. And so this practice of Advent is actually a great gift to us because it brings us back to what is most real about our present moment, about our life in the scheme of all that God has done and is doing. We are awaiting people, waiting for him to show up, waiting for him to finish that which he started. And that's exactly where this prayer from Isaiah 64 takes us into that space of desire, of desperate desire that God would show up. 
And it's a prayer, I wanna emphasize that because I think sometimes when we read scripture, we just imagine there's some truths that we're meant to glean, but it's a prayer that we're meant to pray. We're meant to inhabit its word and make, a, make these words our own words, make this, this cry of the heart our own cry of the heart, that we would commune with God in this space of longing and desire and hope. So there are three movements to the prayer that you will notice. And the first is this desperate cry. Second, this guilt uh, that is confessed. And finally, the hope that is embraced. So the desperate cry, verse one, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. This is the God, where are you space, right? It's that kind of a prayer. It's uh, if you imagine the disciples in the boat on the storm on the lake, right? And they're like, Jesus, wake up. Don't you know what's coming around? Don't you know what's going on? This is that kind of a prayer that arises from a desperation. Now, here's the thing. Most of us only ever feel this way or pray this way when we hit the outer limits of what is possible for us to do as human beings. In other words, we're freshly aware of our limitations, of our finitude, that we are not ultimate, we are not God, we are finite beings who have real gifts, beautiful gifts, wonderful gifts, but they're just not enough to undo and unravel or reweave all of the brokenness that is in our own lives personally or in our world more broadly. This is that moment when you've hit the limits of what you can do. You've run out of all of the illusion of your possible control over life circumstances, your own or those that are more broadly abroad in the world. And so this is a moment of tremendous freedom it's not a place of despair, not at all, because it's a moment of recognizing our limitation in the presence of a God who is not limited, of a God who loves us even in his power and in his greatness. And so this is waking up to the scale of trouble that's in our lives and our stories and our world and our politic and in all of these dimensions of the brokenness of human life. We wake up to the scale of that trouble and we begin to look outward beyond ourselves to the only one who can be our hope, to God himself, who will enter the mess and put all things right. Do you know that feeling in your life as you think about circumstances over the last year, particularly these last 10 months in which whatever pain you are already experiencing is all the more amped up because of COVID? Do you know the pain of despair? Do you know the cry of the soul? Oh God, wake up. Where are you? Come near. Tear open the space between your world and our world. Rend the heavens and come down. That's the cry of Isaiah here. And almost certainly he's writing an exilic community or maybe a post-exilic community, some of whom have returned home and found it desolate in ruins, the ruins of Jerusalem, and they found the temple itself burned and destroyed. And they look upon these ruins and they say, there's no way we can do this. Rend the heavens, come down. And so they desperately turn to God, wake up God, act. Verses three and four take us into that little glimpse of memory 
of the times in the past when God has shown up, when he has sort of torn the heavens metaphorically and come down and undone the brokenness to some extent. And here they ask for the same surprise of God's presence, the cry of desperation. Now second, confessing our guilt. This is when we are in that space of looking to God and appealing to God, but we're all the more aware of the inconsistencies of our own life stories, right? Confession is about truth-telling. It's about reconnecting with something that is far more real than anything else. In other words, I move away from the illusions of my own self. I move away from the illusions of our world and I come to the space of truth. And in this particular spot of confession, in this particular kind of confession, Isaiah is in a space of understanding his and Israel's own complicity in the troubles that are of this world. They're not just troubles that are out there, they're troubles that are in here, and they're not just troubles that are brought on because someone else has sinned or done wrong, but they're troubles that my own life has participated in. Verse five, Isaiah notes that we've come before this God who delights to meet those who do right. And the moment I ever read a statement like that, almost immediately what happens in your own conscience, in your own mind, you are flooded with an idea or maybe a litany of, of, of issues that are real about your life that leave you saying, but I'm not right. There's something wrong in my life. Those who do right, who remember God's ways. In verse six, Isaiah reminds us that our, of our complicity with this wrong, that it's on his tongue, it's on our best works, if you will, that all is actually soiled and not nearly as good and loving as it ought to be. Verse seven recalls a situation that he feels that he's in in which no one honestly with authenticity calls upon the name of God. These are dark reflections. They're hard truths, right, of brokenness in our lives and in our world, of the wrongs done, of the inconsistencies that exist within our lives and our life with God and even our lives with our neighbor. The ways that we sometimes feel stuck in those inconsistencies. Do you ever feel that way, that sense of stuckness? There is truth here that we need to own there's truth here that we need to acknowledge about our own complicity in the darkness and in the brokenness, but it is honestly very difficult truth for us to take in authentically, <laughs> honestly, without getting stuck in this. This is the part of the prayer that reminds me of Isaiah's description of his own experience back in chapter six, in which the political world around him has been unraveling. The king, Uzziah, has died. And Isaiah has gone into the space of temple worship. And almost suddenly in that space of worshiping God, he is flooded with the reality of God's greatness. And he has this vision of the angelic hosts surrounding the throne of God and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And in that very moment of discovering and fresh sense of God's nearness, because he's broken through, he's come near, almost immediately Isaiah is stuck in this acknowledgement that he is not like God. Remember the words, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
Isaiah, a prophet, a truth teller, one who is meant to beautifully articulate the world of God to those of us that feel stuck inside of our own worlds so that our imaginations might be blown up with this expectation that God might actually meet us here in that moment of seeing and beholding the greatness of God, Isaiah feels personally undone in God's presence because his story is complicated. My story is complicated. Your story is complicated. Our story is complicated. We don't do the right that we would desire to do. But I want you to think about this. The person that does right in the eyes of God is the person who brings the wholeness of their story to the eyes of God, who opens themselves up to God. It is a person who is willing to engage the dark threads of truth in our own lives before God, with God. We don't avoid it, we don't deny it, we don't defend against it, rather we engage it in his very presence. But listen to this, and this is very, very important because as a pastor, one of the things I'm aware of as you tell me your story, as I am brought into some dark truth sometimes in your lives, as you've called upon me to know these things, or as I've sought people that would know my own story, right, more completely, here's what I know to be true of us. It is so easy to get lost in our confession of sin. It is so easy to speak of our guilt and our sin in such a way that we remain stuck, spiraling down further and further without looking up, without lifting our heads, without moving beyond that thread of darkness. We get lost in this space of confession. And some of, for some of us, that's because we have grown up in a culture that is sort of layered upon us, layer after layer of moral expectation and the reminder that we are condemned, that we are judged, that we are not enough, that you are not enough. Have you ever heard those things in your life? Have you ever felt those truths about your life? But here's the thing that I think Isaiah shows us is that when we misunderstand the extent of our badness, if you will, we are often not seeing the deeper grace and mercy of the truth of God's goodness and his love toward us. It's interesting in this particular space of confession, verse seven, Isaiah brings us back, I think, to the deepest problem of all, and it's not the problem of our failures, it's the problem of God's hiddenness to us, that we don't see him as he is. There is this gap between our knowledge of who God is and our experience of who God is. There's a gap between the realities of our world and the world that God promises will come. And as long as God remains hidden to us, as long as right, that is the case of our lives, that is the story of our lives, we are not delivered to him, but we are stuck in this downward spiral in the space of lostness and sin. We feel as though God has just said, have it your way. And so here again, even in that space of confessing and acknowledging the darkness, Isaiah is brought to a fresh space of needing what? God to tear open the heavens and come down, to overcome his hiddenness, to overcome the gap, to not be invisible to us, but to be known, experienced by us as a God who welcomes and loves us. My experience of being a pastor is that very often we imagine that these broken parts of our story are the very things that should keep us from being a part of the communion of his people. And yet the reality is the only way to be a part of the communion of his people 
is to acknowledge the brokenness that is within us and to acknowledge it in the face of a God who welcomes us and says, come, eat, taste. Desperate cries, confessing our guilt. Now finally, confessing our hope, finding our hope. So remember, confession is about reconnecting with what is most real. And the beautiful part of this prayer for me, I think, is that we are reminded that what is most real about our lives is not simply those dark threads in our lives or in our world or in the lives of those that we love, but rather the deepest truth of all that you and I need to reconnect with is the truth of who God is, that he loves us, that he's with us. We have to adjust ourselves to the truth of his reality, not to the realities of our world and its brokenness, but rather to wake up to the reality of who God is and what he says. And one of the ways that we know that our sense of sin is something that God has brought us into a knowledge of in our minds and our hearts is that God never ever leaves you stuck in a spiral downward, ever. Remember Isaiah's own story in that great throne room space when he's confessing his sin, that the angels take a coal from the altar of the presence of God and they touch Isaiah's lips. In other words, they touch him at the space, the wound that he's just confessed about his own life and he's cleansed. And as Isaiah then freshly hears God's call upon his life, who will go for us and proclaim this gospel to the world? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. In other words, he's ready because he's experienced who God is as a God who loves him. God always takes us to the greater truth in our sin. He takes us to the truth that he is our father who loves his children. He loves you. He is a potter who forms the clay and doesn't give up on the clay that he has formed, but forms it again and again. Here Isaiah picks up this theme of God as a potter. He introduced it back in chapter 45. And here he pulls it forward into this space of prayer and confession in which he's just simply acknowledging, I've confessed the truth of who I am before a God who loves me, who is a maker. God is a maker. He is a maker and he is a remaker. And he doesn't invite us to know ourselves without knowing the greatness of himself as a potter who can take your life, your lump of clay and make something absolutely beautiful with it. Even your broken story, God is a maker. Do you know who you are as one who is born into his family, born of God's own self and created by God for, for life in this world? That's the picture that Isaiah leaves us with in this particular prayer. Verse eight, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember our iniquity forever. Now consider, we are your people. We are your people. The hope that Isaiah has come back to is a hope of relationship, that he belongs body and soul to this God who loves him, who fathers him, who cares for Israel, who moves the story, who moves his story, our personal stories, our collective story forward to the reality of his promised coming kingdom because he's the God who makes, he's the God who persists with us, he's the God who loves us, he's the God who says, you belong to my people. And so the prayer leaves us sort of asking of this God to act as our father, to show up 
in our lives as one who loves us, who would parent us perfectly and beautifully. We ask God to act as a potter who forms and shapes and reshapes us because the truest thing about us, about my story, about your story, is that we are part of his people. We belong. So think this morning about how you might utilize this prayer in your life in the coming week as we sort of set a new intention for this brand new Christian year, this Advent. How would you pull this into your life? What's well, important to remember that we pray these words long after Isaiah first penned them, uh, long after many, many generations of followers of God have taken these words to their lips century after century after century. We take these words to our lips in the aftermath of that great moment when God literally tore the heavens and came down. The story of Jesus, when God show up, not showed up not just with words or promises or ideas or works of power and greatness, but rather God showed up in human form, in person, born of Mary into our literal world. That's the moment that we take these up. So when, this, when Isaiah is recalling a time when God did wonderful things, we pray these words recalling that great moment when Jesus was born into the history of this world. A human being intimately, vulnerably entering our world and bearing the weight of its mess and its brokenness, of my mess and my brokenness, of your mess and your brokenness. So we read these words, perhaps thinking this morning, Jesus was born. Jesus lived a beautiful life of love among those who knew God and those who did not know God. He lived a beautiful life of love among those persons who were rejected by those at the center. And he's always welcoming, always bringing in and his life ends in death, but not death, but rather resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to inhabit us so that when we pray these prayers, there is no gap. God is with you. He's with you this morning. He's with you this Advent. He's with you in 2020. He's with you in this moment when it's impossible for us to pretend that we're not awaiting people. And he says, I love you. And so we remember that great moment of God's tremendous inbreaking into the world and display of his fatherly love for you and for me. And we cry out, come again. It's time, we're weary. We need you, Lord, to show up into this world. Why? Because we're limited. We can't really formulaically or strategically bring about your kingdom. So would you show up so that I would be a person of love, so that we would be a community of love, so that we would live in this world differently as we wait? And we remember in those moments of speaking to God so vulnerably that yes, our story has its own dark spaces. But more importantly, we pray this prayer remembering the triumph of his love over our dark spaces. And we remember that he is a God who loves us, invites us into relationship, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that we are clay and that he is the potter. And so we cry out, Lord, 
bring your kingdom. Tear open the heavens. Come down. Surprise us once again. May God give us grace to cry out like that in desperation, aware of our limits, aware of our guilt, but far more aware of his great abiding mercy and love and grace that is pronounced over our lives. His favor is upon you as you enter this Advent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.